Well, last week we looked at Jesus' transfiguration, an event that gave Peter, James, and John, who would be future pillars of Christ's church, a, a glimpse into the coming glory of the soon-to-be-crucified and resurrected Christ. This morning, we pick up on the action really on the very next day, I assume maybe even the very next morning. So let's pick it up, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this time of meditation on your word that we might see Jesus, that we might commune with him, that this word would dwell richly within us, shaping us and molding us to you in, in ways that perhaps we can't foresee or, or even see today or understand in this life. And we trust that you will do all of this through your spirit. So we pray this very simple prayer in Jesus' name as he taught us to do through the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, previous to this moment, Peter, James, and John, somewhat like Moses on Mount Sinai, were taking up to a, a symbolic Garden of Eden, the place where heaven and earth came together, and they were allowed there in that spot to take in the glory of God and His Son, Jesus. And what I failed to point out last week is that when Moses was brought into God's presence in the cloud on Sinai, he wanted to see God's glory, which God agreed to show him, but God would not show him his face, because doing so would kill Moses. It's why in Isaiah chapter 6, for example, when Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of God, he despairs for his life, because he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Jesus teaches that the only one who is able to take in God the Father, the only one who sees him and knows him full on, face to face, is Jesus himself. This is perhaps why the throne room guardians, the, the seraphim or the cherubim, in that same passage in Isaiah 6, they cover their faces perpetually with their wings. In turn, Jesus insists that if you have seen him, then you have seen the Father. And if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. Jesus, as John argues in his gospel, is the greatest, fullest revelation of God there is. And to know Jesus is to know God himself. Or perhaps more poignantly, as God says to Moses on Sinai, I know you by name. So to be known by Jesus, he knows you all by name is to be known by the Father, too. 
So unlike Moses on Sinai, who God protected from his full glory and was kept from seeing his face, the disciples were allowed to see Jesus in his glory, and they saw him full in the face. So what Moses partially saw on Sinai, the disciples fully saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the next day, Jesus came down the mountain. This is our passage today. Like Moses, really kind of coming off of Sinai, and a great crowd was waiting for him. And within that crowd, a man cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, the language... Luke uses here is actually very important. It is the man's unique and only son. This is the same exact language John uses to describe Jesus in John 3.16 as God's only son, or as the King James Version has made popular, his only begotten son. It is the exact same term in the Greek. Hebrews 11.17 uses the same exact term to describe Abraham offering Isaac, his only unique son, as a sacrifice to God. So this is important language to pay attention to. The theme of the only son, or really the firstborn son, as you probably know, is, is pretty prominent in, in Scripture. It's a major theme. So, for example, in Exodus 13, right in the middle of the final plague, plague of the death of the firstborn sons, that's the tenth plague, Moses just pauses the story. He just stops right in the middle of the action in order to give instructions on how Israel was to treat their firstborn children, uh, both male and female, and all their livestock, but also how the Passover was to be celebrated for years to come. It's kind of strange that you're in the middle of such a high-tension moment, and he says, let me tell you how to treat your children and also how this festival is going to work for generations to come, which means you should pay attention to it because it's explaining the meaning of what's, what's happening. And God says that the firstborn of both humans and animals, in particular livestock, the first to open the womb is the exact line there, are to be consecrated, that is, set apart as belonging to God. And it signifies that the gift of new life is always a gift from God. And though he commands both humans and animals to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, even that command is ultimately fulfilled through his giving, through his gift of life. But as you follow along in the instructions for the Passover, God makes explicit reference that it is the firstborn males that will be set apart as belonging to God and is the firstborn males of the livestock that will atone for that son. And this is a principle that goes all the way back to Eve and the promise that one of her offspring, a son, would redeem the world. And as is already indicated after the fall into sin by the covering of their nakedness, if you'll remember, the covering of their nakedness by the skins of animals at God's own hand, no less. I mean, think about it. Who sacrificed those animals to cover Adam and Eve? It was God who did that. It wasn't Adam. Well, whoever that son, that future son would be of Eve's, whoever that promised redeemer is, the way he would atone for sin would be through the giving of his life unto death, like the animals whose skins clothed Adam and Eve in their sin. 
Initially, now, Eve thinks Cain might be that promised redeemer when she names him, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But it soon becomes apparent that God intended to bring forth the redeemer through Abel's lineage. And in turn, instead of looking to God's promise of life through Abel, Cain murders his brother and Abel's life, his name actually and literally means vapor, vanishes and is gone. So the pattern of the son who would atone comes into more focus when Abraham, who is of the lineage of Seth, is commanded by God to offer his only son as a sacrifice. But as we've mentioned in past weeks, Isaac, as good as he was, was insufficient. But more so, our God, unlike the demons parading as gods, he does not require his people to sacrifice their children to him. In fact, it is an abomination to him. Joseph's story gives further shape to the pattern as the beloved son of the father, clothed in his father's righteousness, is nearly murdered by his brothers, at least it's faked. He's forsaken by them. He is sold into slavery only to rise to the right hand of Pharaoh and in turn feeding the world like the feeding of the 5,000. And in turn, he restores his brother and he is restored to his father. So what becomes apparent throughout the Old Testament as it twists and turns and moves along, especially in the Levitical system, is that an unblemished son of the herd will redeem his people even as God refuses to make his people pay this price and instead allows animals to stand in the son's place. Even so, the death of those animals is predicated on the son of the woman, the Redeemer who would come from Eve, who was surely going to come and make good on all those sacrifices. Now, as an aside, it's why the place that became known as hell in the New Testament, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, which the Greek Gehenna is a play on Hinnom, or their kind of transliteration of it, it was the place where the southern kingdom of Judah, just right outside of Jerusalem, sacrificed their children to the demons in the fires. In other words, as, as Joshua Butler put it, to their mindset, hell is an abortion clinic. It is a fiery abortion clinic. See, paganism, both ancient and modern, is bound up with demons that require child sacrifice. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon puts it, even as the means by which they do the killing has changed. So our culture offers children of all ages, both in the womb and outside of it, to demons in the name of convenience or freedom or choice or, or more lately, gender-affirming care. So returning to the ten plagues in Egypt, clearly the tenth Clearly the tenth was the worst of them all. You get cycles of three, 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 then the one. And the one is the worst of them all. And the basic meaning of it was this. If Egypt and Israel would not turn to God and find life in him, and he's offering life to both Egypt and Israel, then their own sons would atone, which, of course, they were incapable of doing. So for good reason, Pharaoh, as a proxy for the serpent, 
of Genesis 3, and he is described in just the same terms as the serpent, that he had attacked the male children of the lineage of Seth. And the attack on God's promise of a future son who would redeem usually manifests an attack either on the child or children or an attack on the woman. And you see both happen all throughout the book of Genesis. So both the Egyptians and the Hebrews would either accept the atonement God offered freely in the Passover, or they would face the judgment on their own. It's why the promise made to Abraham was for him and his offspring. It's why in Exodus 34, God describes his character this way. He says, and this is when Moses is in the glory cloud and is asked to see him in his glory. God says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That means generations. Thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right there, you get God's character that he wants to give life to the nth degree, thousands and thousands of generations. But he will bring judgment, rightly. And it extends, it's such a small number, to the third and fourth generation. God wants to forgive and redeem, and he wants to give life to generation after generation. But if his people choose to reject him, to go looking like, say, Cain, for their own salvation and their strength, like in the Tower of Babel, then they will have to account for themselves. And in turn, their sons will atone. So here in Luke, we have the only son of a father, afflicted by a demon, not unlike the Hebrews suffering under the oppression of Pharaoh, and a father appealing to the only son of God, to save him. It is the only Son of God healing an only Son. And it is exactly the sort of thing God has promised to do since Adam and Eve fell into sin. Now, the description of the demonic attack sounds like what we would think of as an epileptic seizure, even as the Father attributes the seizures to a demon. And texts just like this one have led modern commentators to assume that ancient people, since they did not have our, our modern uh, scientific understandings of the world, let alone our medical knowledge, that ancient people wrongly attributed to a demon what was merely a physical occurrence. And the modern assumption, which is unprovable, by the way, it's an assumption. It is a statement of faith. It is a belief system. And it's hard for us living in the modern age as Christians to see past. Well, it assumes a radical distinction between the spiritual and the material, as if the two things are completely separate realms of existence, with the spiritual being less real and quartered off from our everyday existence. The Bible, as you can imagine, sees things very differently. In fact, most of the world, even the non-Christian world, sees things very different than, than modern Western people. And here with Luke, we, we see two things at work. First, Luke does not make a distinction between diseases and demons, as if one is morally neutral, the disease, and one 
is not morally neutral, the demon. No, both demonic attacks and physical diseases are the result of living in a fallen and sinful world. Second, the demon's attack is not by way of possession, like what we saw with legion, for example, in Luke chapter 8, but rather the demon attacks the boy by way of a disease. Now compare that with how Satan attacked Job. How did Satan attack Job? Satan was given permission to afflict Job and his family by way of what we would think of as natural disaster, loss of wealth, and bodily disease. And notice that we take all three of these things, you know, natural disasters, financial meltdowns, and diseases, as having nothing to do with the spiritual, as if the ending bell numbers on Wall Street or a tsunami or cancer, they just happen. Who knows where they come from? Clearly not every disease is caused by a demon. But at the same time, the number of diseases caused by demons, it isn't zero. Do we know exactly? No, we don't. But we know from Scripture that some are caused that way. And it's funny how we take good weather to be a gift from God, but we don't take bad weather that way, let alone catastrophic weather to be from Him. Unless it hits uh, a people or a part of the country we think deserve to get hit by bad weather, and then we call it his justice. And even Apple, in a recent uh, attempt to signal their virtue to shareholders, and I guess the world, imagined a board meeting where an angry and frustrated Mother Nature, played by the Oscar-winning actress Octavia Spencer, no less, was coming to make Apple account for the company's global climate footprint, complete with CEO Tim Cook nervously anticipating her arrival. That is paganism. It's paganism dressed up in scientific and technological garb. And as Solomon would say, again, there ain't nothing new, y'all. That's a paraphrase. Now, in verse 40, the man says, And I begged your disciples to cast this demon out, but they could not. Now remember, in the first part of chapter 9, Jesus had sent out the twelve to proclaim the kingdom, heal diseases and cast out demons, and they had success. Good things happened. And when we get to chapter 10, Jesus will send out the 72, and they also will have success. And they will say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But here, the nine other disciples waiting on Jesus, Peter, James, and John, remember they're all up on top of the mountain, waiting on them to return, they failed. So what has changed in the intervening time? Well, in that time between the beginning of chapter 9 till now, they had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but in turn, Jesus, in confirming that confession, tells them that that meant that Jesus would suffer and die by crucifixion, no less, and he would be raised on the third day. And we know from Matthew's account that this new information was shocking to the disciples, and it really rattled them. Peter, uh, in fact, goes from being praised by Jesus for his confession that was given to him by the Father to being called Satan by Jesus because as a friend and disciple of Jesus, he was tempting him away from his path to the cross and the atonement for his people. So by the time we get to the transfiguration, confusion is, is somewhat set in, and Peter is practically babbling nonsense. And in turn, 
Peter, James, and John, they go silent after God the Father tells them to listen to his beloved son. Listen to him when he says he will suffer and die and be raised from the dead. So as Jesus moves ever closer to offering himself as that atonement for the sins of the world, in a way, of course, that it just doesn't hit with us, but it was just utterly scandalous to the Jewish uh, people, his disciples grow more confused to the point that they will eventually desert him in the moment of his greatest need. And I think the disciples' failure here is akin probably to the scene in Matthew 14, where Peter and the disciples are out on a boat. Jesus had been up on a mountain praying, as is his practice, and he comes to them in the midst of a storm walking on the water. And they initially think they're seeing a ghost or a spirit. I mean, after all, if we saw someone walking on the water, we would freak out too. We'd wonder if we were seeing things, and we would, maybe it is a ghost. I have no idea what's going on. But Peter calls out, Lord, if it is really you, if it is really you, command me to come to you. And you see, Peter was testing. He was testing to see if it was really Jesus. And Jesus says, come. And in a moment of, of great faith, he steps out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus. But again, this is in the midst of a storm. And when he started taking the storm more seriously than the Jesus who was right in front of him, he began to sink. And of course, immediately, Jesus saved him. So while Peter might have thought he was testing Jesus, it was Jesus who was testing Peter, and he exposed the depth or the lack thereof of Peter's faith. And once back on the boat, the storm stopped, and he asked, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And turn everyone on the boat, rightly worship Jesus right then and there. And Peter, of course, did not have the ability to walk on water. His walking was dependent on Jesus. And notice that, that Jesus didn't say Peter was faithless, no, Jesus said he had little faith, and there's a difference. Peter did walk at least some distance on the water. It was rather in the midst of his testing, like Adam in the garden with the serpent, that he lost sight of the object of his faith. He lost sight of the one who kept him in the midst of the storm. So too here in our passage, it's not as though the disciples had the power to cast out demons in themselves. The disciples like us have zero abilities on their own. The authority to proclaim the kingdom, to heal, and to cast out demons came directly from Jesus alone, who gave it to them. And once they started to lose sight of him, they too started to sink. So once they had made this great bold confession that he is the Christ, but then hears, no, 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 he will die. Like Peter on the water, they're looking at the storms and they are starting to sink. Yet Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. To give in to the idea that we can do anything, anything apart from Jesus, even our faith is given to us, will lead to our shrinking away from his presence, which is what we will see happen with the disciples until he restores them after his resurrection. Now, in verse 30, 41, Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Okay, so while it's clear that last sentence, Jesus was talking to the Father, bring your son here, 
Who was Jesus referring to when he said, O faithless and twisted generation? In particular, after the disciples had failed. What's going on there? Well, I think in general, he was referring to the people of God, in particular, their, their shepherds who refused to accept him as the Messiah. But I think it is also a warning to the disciples themselves who were shrinking. They were people of little faith. They might become faithless if they're not careful. This is exactly the same kind of warning that Jesus offers in some of the letters in the book of Revelation, in the first chapters there, that you may lose your lampstand. Stay faithful. Keep your eyes on me. And of course, I know we're Reformed, I know we're Presbyterian, and we believe in election and all those things, and rightly so. But you can look across America over the last 60 years, and you can see how mainline denominations have taken their eyes off of Christ. And how has it gone for them? How has it gone for them? So if they did not guard their hearts and keep their eyes set on Jesus, they too would go the way of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, in the end, Judas was faithless and he was twisted. And we read in verse 42 that as the father brought his son to Jesus, the demon attacked the son again. So just as God came for his son Israel, and by the way, that's how he describes Israel in the book of Exodus, my son. So just as God came for his son Israel in Egypt, so the serpent through Pharaoh doubled down on his attacks on God's son. So Jesus here rebuked the demon. He rebuked the demon, something he has done to physical diseases at this point and threatening the weather and other demons and things like that. And in turn, he heals the boy. So he both cleansed the boy of the demon and his disease. And like Abraham receiving back his son Isaac, so Jesus in turn gives his son back to his father. Jesus himself would be cut off from his own father on the cross in order to restore us to God. But of course, with his ascension, he himself was restored to the right hand of God. Now, the crowds in response were astonished by the majesty of God. And majesty, that term, of, of course, is, is used as a description of kings. Of kings. The crowd recognized God's kingly rule in Jesus. And it's a fitting end to this section, and it ties directly back to the transfiguration. See, the majesty of God is certainly shown in Jesus and his radiating glory on the transfiguration, but is most often demonstrated in his actions as he defends his people from their enemies. In this case, a literal demon, and he heals them and restores his people to his Father. But as Jesus will double down with the next passage, I mean, he goes so far as to say, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, are you listening? Pay attention. This king, this promised heir of David, is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus is the promised son of Eve. Everything Genesis 3 has been building towards, it's him. He is the unblemished son of the herd that all of Leviticus looked forward to. 
He is the son of King David, the promised heir that would sit on his throne forever, who refuses to make us atone for our own sin by the offering up of our children. He is no demon. No, he offered himself for us in our salvation. He is for you. Let me pray for us as we enter into the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no God like you, no son like you, who gives his life as a ransom, as an atonement for his people. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. You are our king, and we offer you our lives in response. And we pray all of this with the confidence that you've given to us because of the gift of your spirit who indwells us even now and unites us to you and to your Father. Amen.